Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This is Eating Crow with Pete Durand. Everyone, welcome to another thrilling episode of the Eating Crow podcast. Jared Greer is our guest today. Hi, Jared. Hey, Pete. Thanks for having me, man. We've known each other for almost a year and a half, two years now, I think. We've been working together on a couple of different projects you have going. And finally, we just looked at each other and said, why are you not on this podcast? You've done some incredible things, way cooler things than I've ever done at your age. So that's the whole point of the podcast is to get people on who've done cool things. And you just did something really cool that we'll talk about. You just ran 100 miles in the Grand Canyon. 100 miles in the Grand Canyon. Yep. And it wasn't just like in the bottom of the canyon. It was down into the canyon, <laughs> up into the out of the canyon, and then back and forth a couple of times. A couple. Just a couple. Yep. We're going to get to that in a little bit because that is a physical accomplishment very, very few people in this world will ever do. So I don't know if I recommend it in your 50s. But when you're about to turn 40, it's a good idea. <laughs> there you go. Just just barely before 40. There's a small uh, window. <laughs> yeah. And it was a family thing. We'll talk about that as well. So Jared, you've got an interesting background. To me, the reason I wanted to have the show is there's a lot of overlap. We're, we're doing this for leaders and entrepreneurs, but everybody knows that I'm a big family guy, right? It's an important part of my life. It's an important... In fact, it's your business. It's what you're doing. And that's kind of how we ran across each other is that I thought your messaging was really spot on and you've really dialed it in. So we're going to talk about how your business is growing. Help me understand, help the people that we're talking to understand kind of where you grew up and talk about your family, your brothers who have had a big influence on who you are. And that'll help us kind of set the stage for what you're doing today. Sharing my background probably will shed a lot of light. I grew up in Utah, Provo, Utah. We had eight kids. There's a lot of times, Pete, where I think my parents, they got married and then they just sat down at the kitchen table. They wrote out all the chores that they wanted done in the house. And then they just took a step back and said, we need eight kids. And I think that's how we came to be. <laughs> they brought in a staff. I mean, really, I think from the time I was very, very young, we were doing chores. We were making dinner. We were cleaning. We had a chore chart. We always knew what we were supposed to be doing. Every Saturday, we did yard work outside. And what's interesting is we were we were not wealthy at all, but somehow we lived in a really wealthy area. I found out years later that basically we were like living there for free. So to give you a sense of how wealthy of an area, Stephen Covey lived less than two miles away from us. Wow. So we were in a very wealthy area. Everybody around us was doctors, lawyers, dentists, um, the whole nine, but we were just, we were very poor. I remember we had a hole in our front door from people coming in and out of it so much and kicking the bottom, it started to stick and we kicked the bottom corner and eventually it had a hole that in the winter time in Utah, when it, you know, you got tons of snow, you would feel the draft coming through that hole because it had been kicked so, so many times by people coming, coming in and out. So that's kind of like where I came from. Those are like the roots. And that's a lot of why I think I do what I do today, because I grew up in a place where I became very observant of Everybody around me, why did this kid get the t- that attention from that girl? Or, you know, why did the teacher pay attention to this kid over here and maybe not to me? And from a very, very young age, I, I was observing. Um, we didn't really fit in very well. 
uh, all the other kids were they, they were in sports and they were in the training camps and you know we were playing offense defense in our front yard uh, with a full team I mean admittedly you know we had six boys two girls and so we 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 had what we needed to be able to play games but very very like challenging times to grow up in being a kid or in in that that kind of an area in many ways my brothers we became really good friends and worst enemies we mm-hmm. always kind of had to find things to do one of my favorite stories is of my little brother Mike and I sneaking to off to McDonald's we were we we're going to run away to McDonald's and our plan was to uh, hide in the ball pit and wait until everybody went home and then emerge and eat all the ice cream that we that we uh we wanted and that plan failed miserably because i think we showed up at mcdonald's at like 2 30 in the afternoon <laughs> so <laughs> they were come around at four o'clock and uh yeah they were like where are your parents you can't be here <laughs> so they sent us home we did the walk of shame and we got a good talking to when we got home so where were you in the stack of eight kids by the way so i was sixth so i've got two little brothers Okay. And then three older brothers and then two it, oldest sisters. And are you close to the other seven siblings to this day? Yeah, for sure. Great. For sure. So my parents were divorced when I was 11. Okay. And it was a really ugly divorce. Again, the, the area that we live, like that kind of stuff didn't really happen. Mm-mm. No, I, so I spent a lot of time was, in Utah. That doesn't happen there. Yeah. So it was definitely a, maybe a sore spot in the community, I think a little bit. But it also bonded us together. My dad got remarried about a year later, and he brought in a step family that we were very, very different then. Um, and that ushered in kind of a totally different experience to where now, if you talk to any of the kids, it really depends on where they were when the parents got divorced and my mm-hmm. dad got remarried to determine kind of what their outlook is. Yeah, because some of them were probably almost out of the house at that point. Some were out of the house. And many of us, like we had lived a very kind of rigid life up to that point. And then once divorce happened, it seemed like the standards were just erased, just gone. And so it was kind of a weird feeling of like, wait, now we can watch the Simpsons. Like that's okay. And now, or now we're buying s- like store, you know, store brand, uh, cereal, like the, the name brand cereal. We're buying that now. Okay. I can sleep in the ball pit at McDonald's. Okay. I, I mean, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Anything goes. That's kind of how it felt. So again, back then, in particularly in, in, in Provo, Utah, and by the way, one of my favorite lines from the movie Fletch is Marvin, Thelma, and Provo, three names I enjoy. Watch it. It's a great movie. Uh, so anytime I hear the word Provo, I just smile. Fletch. Yep. But, you know, mixed family. So did you live with your step family? Did they live with you guys? Yeah. So again, uh, and very uncommon, uh, my dad got full custody. So we wow. all lived with my dad. My mom just didn't really have a, a way to provide for us. Sure. Um, and so we lived with my dad, which was a complete backfire of what my mom thought was going to happen. And so we lived with my dad and then our step family. And so there's this weird attempt to blend these two families that were uh, like oil and water. I mean, just very, very different. Very Today, very different. Do, you, do you keep in touch with any of your step siblings? So again, it kind of depends on, on where you were in that kind of realm. Like my little brothers are much closer with the step siblings than I am. And then the ones that are still in Utah, they get together. I don't really stay in great touch with them. I always kind of sure. think of my family as family. our eight kids and my mom and my dad. And some of that might just be from uh, trauma or something, but it's, uh, it's the do way you stay, I see it. Do you stay in touch with your parents? 
Yeah. So, uh, very close with my dad. My mom actually passed away when I was 16. So not uh, long after, wow. Not long after she came down with breast cancer It was actually the second time she had breast cancer. Wow. Um, they gave her four months to live because she couldn't take care of herself. She ended up in a resting home I mean, she actually made it about 18 months or so a year and a half wow. fighter, definitely a fighter. I, I think she thought she was going to beat it all the way up until she was too incoherent to know what she was fighting. She was always a fighter for sure. So she passed away from breast cancer when I was 16. And that's where things started to spiral a little bit. <laughs> you think about the early years of growing up and then the changes in your family dynamic and, and anybody that's gone through divorce as a young child recognizes the significant change that is. But the fact that you know up until that point, it was very structured. You had chores, tasks, whatever, and then boom, the, the gloves are off, right? It, it, the chains are loose. It's, it, you're free. That can send a lot of people in different directions. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you have to pull them back. So when you think about your passion for parenting for kids, and we'll talk about your, your transition from your career, right? Where you were grinding and going for success and into the point where you ended up in North Carolina, you looked around, and you're like, how do I just embrace this? And how do I help other people embrace this? Talk about your time at the University of Phoenix as a student and eventually working there. And what is it at the point of that? I think it was around an eight year career where you said to yourself, we got to make a change. Yeah. So man, a, a lot there. Mm-hmm. If I think about just the like the foundation of it all, I remember I asked my dad years later, I was probably 22 and I asked my dad, Hey, you know, as you look at those times and you think about our family, what would you do differently? And he said something, Pete, that I will never forget and that I use and share all the time with people. He said, I didn't understand the difference between principles and practices. And as I looked through that lens of like, okay, my parents were great at teaching practices, do this, do that. But they were not great at teaching principles, the why behind it. What is the principle there? Be honest. So yeah, in the moment you can teach them to not lie, but you need to be honest. The principle there is honesty. Um, And so that, that really made a ton of sense to me when he shared it. Uh, And I think my parents did the best with what they had. Really, truly, I think they just honestly, with so many kids, were trying to keep their heads above water most of the time. So I think a lot of my passion comes from just that experience Mm -hmm. and that reality that people need principles to be able to operate on. And without them, then you just get compliance when what you really need and want is comprehension. So fast forward, my spiral was very much, you know, at that point after my mom passed away, you know, I was never a good student. I wasn't doing well in school. And because of where we lived, honestly, I felt like I had kind of hit the ceiling. I felt like there was nothing out there for me. I was kind of as good as it gets at that point, um, which was kind of a a bleak view. Uh, I had some really amazing mentors that started to help me understand my potential. And I started to turn the corner, but I still wrestle to this day a little bit with Like, am I this guy? Am I this guy can have this type of success or that type of success? And I think that's probably some of the demons that maybe I'll probably fight for ever. But when I got the job at University of Phoenix, my plan was to actually get an education for free and then go to law school. Well, University of Phoenix back then was ridiculous. Everybody was going online. Uh, It was a booming industry at that time. They were kind of first to market with it. 
And so it paid really, really well. And so when you look at 2006, 2007, when the market crashed, well, in a recession, everybody goes back to school. And so when everybody else was losing their jobs and losing their income, I was making $10,000, $15,000 increases on my, on my salary every six months. So wow. that vision of law school set sail because I just figured, hey, if I go to law school and I take on $100,000 worth of debt to make $180,000 a year, why? And work my fingers to the bone, right? So fast forward, I stayed at University of Phoenix. I took a role over in the DC metro area. We covered the entire DC metro area so I could get some real business experience versus sitting in a call center in Arizona where mm -hmm. I had kind of began. I was a senior director at the time. Almost from the day that I got to Virginia in 2011, we started laying people off. And eventually we had a hundred and something people when I got there and eight managers. And when I was laid off in 2013, we had one manager and seven employees. So we had just been hacking away at it. I left there to go work at a consulting firm, which is a whole different set of experience there. Yeah. But uh, it showed me that the grass is rarely greener somewhere else. And there's not really any business or any industry that's secure or safe or protected or untouchable like we thought. Because then I started working with companies all over the world and seeing that they also had, in many cases, poor leadership, poor decision-making, market you know, headwinds that they had to face. And so it just really opened my eyes a lot in that perspective that kind of said, well, it does, does it really matter what I do if any job, any industry is going to have those types of headwinds? I may as well do something that I love. And during that time, you kind of had a fast rise at, at University of Phoenix during a time when the market was really big. Yep. Then you shifted into a couple of different consulting roles when you got to be exposed to different companies around the world. Were you feeling like you were maintaining the balance at home as well? Did you feel like that was intact or were you starting to struggle with those things as well? And did that start to shape where you are today? So if I had to say what really shaped, so 2010, actually, before we even moved to Virginia, we, we were living in Arizona. We were actually expecting our first baby. And my wife was pregnant. And on a Sunday afternoon, she said, hey, I don't, I, I haven't felt the baby kick. This is a tough one, isn't it? So we went to the hospital to look, to, to, to see, and the nurse, we had, we'd actually had trouble getting pregnant in the first place. And so uh, we had used fertility treatments. And so we knew, you know, ultrasounds very well. We, we know what to look for. We know, we, we just were very adept to what happens there. And so the nurse came in, started doing the ultrasound, could not find a heartbeat. She scurried out. Two more nurses come in, looking, looking, looking they leave another two or three nurses come in and finally the room is empty and everybody knew we had lost our baby, but nobody had said it. How far along was she at this point? She was three days from our due date. Oh my God. So our son was stillborn. We, we delivered him. It was that moment where at that point, my career was a rising career it just felt like we had everything that we wanted, everything that we needed. We had bought a house. We'd been married for just a handful yeah. of years, four years. And in that moment, you just know what matters. You know what's important. When you're holding the lifeless body of your baby, you realize what matters. And none of the other stuff matters. 
Not at all. And so that was always, I mean, that was seared into my brain. And I, I shudder sometimes to think, well, if that hadn't happened, where would I be? Because I think I could have been the guy who drove to the highest echelons of business, of, of a company. But because of that experience, I was never far from it. Right. And so I was able to catch it when it did start to wane a little bit. So to your point, when, we, when I started working for the consulting firm, I had come from a very comfortable job as a senior leader at UOP. And now I was in this consulting gig that they wanted my soul. Yeah, they did. So I was getting up super early in the morning, commuting into the city, working long hours, coming back. And it did not take that long for me to be sitting there one night just thinking, is this what we want? Step back a little bit. I've seen you've done one post on this topic before, right? Losing your son. And any parent that's listening to this, their heart sank right when you described that, right? Because there's nine months of anticipation, nine months of joy, nine months of everything you're imagining as a parent. And all of that's gone in the moment. And I've talked to other people that have experienced this. And they didn't get to what you got to just as quickly, which is in that moment, I realized what mattered in life. Nothing else around me mattered. And without diverting too quickly, my wife and I shared a similar experience. It didn't end the same way. When our oldest son was born, the day he was born, we brought him home as our second child. So we had a little experience what it's like to bring a baby home. Well, he passed out of my arms that night, hadn't eaten anything. Every time we laid him down, he was throwing up. Something wasn't right. And by that point, he was so listless that we called our doctor at two in the morning. He said, go straight to Children's Hospital. We got there, they brought him back and he had this thing called volvulus, which is a rare thing that can happen. And they said, we're going to take your son in the operating room. There's a really good chance he's going to die. Say goodbye. Wow. And just punch you right in the face. And what I noticed, and it'd be interesting to hear your thought on this, mothers, mothers are wired differently than fathers. They're chemically made up to be superheroes, freaking superheroes. You know, Julie had just delivered a baby 24 hours earlier, right? She's still recovering, never once faltered. And when they took him out of uh, the, the surgery, which is a very long surgery, they had him in a NIC unit. And the NIC unit has general beds and two isolated rooms where he was on a ventilator. He's laying like this and the machine's breathing for him. They brought us in, gave us a whole talking to what we're going to see. I threw up in the sink <laughs> and Julie went over and hugged him. And the nurse looks at me and goes, it's always the dads. <laughs> it's always the dads. Yeah. Now we were blessed in the fact that they knew what it was. He was able to recover. He had, he had another relapse two months later. It was very difficult, but we saw, like you saw, other people in that room who were going to be in for years and years of you know, real serious challenges and pain. And that happened to me in my late 20s. And I would agree with you that had that unfortunate incident not happened, we would be having the same discussion, but from very different perspectives, yeah. right? We left thinking very differently. Now, fast forward today, you're blessed with how many kids, Jared? Now we have four additional kids. So yeah, we're, we're blessed for sure. Lovely, lovely kids, yep. right? Yep. Right. Two girls, two boys. I wanted to drill into some of these things in your past, your childhood, and particularly that event that I think really shape. And I want people to understand this. When you talk to a life coach or a coach or a business coach, any type of a coach, you have to ask where they're coming from. What makes them qualified to talk to you about these particular topics? On LinkedIn today in particular, you and I, there are a lot of hacks out there. I mean, <laughs> just it's almost makes us both sick to our stomach. We talked about it yesterday. We actually had a meeting before the podcast. Until you can really understand where someone's coming from and why they're talking to you about what they're talking about, uh, it's difficult to respect their ability to be your coach. So uh, let's talk about... We're going to shift gears kind of halfway through the the podcast now into 
this foundation you started from. Why are you so passionate and who are you trying to help in your coaching business on LinkedIn? And then let's drill down into what that audience looks like. Yeah, for sure. So just thank you for sharing your experience because those are the experiences that if we allow them to be, they can be those really pivotal moments. Mm -hmm. And we both had a similar outcome of a different kind of input, right? Like very different scenarios, yet at the same time, we both came out with like a, a keen focus of what really, really matters. And, and that's, that's the passion. Yeah. I want to help working parents who might be thinking, hey, I know I need to do better, but right now I've just got to focus on my career. I want to help them learn that they can do both. Yeah, They don't have to focus on just their career and neglect their family. You can do both. Yeah. And that way you don't run into the, you don't run the risk of being in a situation where you regret time not spent. You regret not sacrificing the work thing to be with your, your kid. And of course, nobody ever wants, and I would never put it you know on the website or really poke at what if this time is your last, but man, no yeah. parent, any parent who has lost or almost lost a child would give anything for those seconds, those minutes together. And so my hope and the mission of Greer Method is to help those working parents be equipped with the tools and strategies that they need to be able to do both. You don't just have to pick one or the other and make these trade-offs. You don't. And back to the the comment where you and I or any other parent would typically say, I would give anything to have that moment back with my child. What parents don't realize They don't realize this. And this is a big part of your message is if you were to ask your children, would you rather have daddy or mommy get a promotion or would you rather have them home with you? Their answer is going to be, I I wouldn't want my mom and dad home with me. They don't process, especially at younger ages, money and they process time and quality, period, and memories and moments. And no parent looks back at this so cliche, right? And look back in your deathbed and go, I wish I'd spent more time at work. But by the way, it's a pretty powerful statement. Indeed. And we also have to acknowledge that uh, for some kids, all the time is not going to be enough. They're still going to be like, Dad, why do you have to go in the bathroom for three minutes while I'm out here ready to play? So like, I I understand there's also this idea that like our kids sometimes are insatiable. And so Mm -hmm. we've got to build those correct boundaries around our time so that we can get it all done. And that's where it gets tricky. And that's where parents will lean heavy into their career. And then they'll swing so far over into the parenting where they're actually not doing good parenting because now they're parenting out of guilt. I was gone for a retreat. Now I'm just going to be here, buy things, let them do whatever they want. And that's not what we need. Yeah, I heard a quote years ago that I just will never forget. And it said, if you never teach your kids how to be alone, that's all they'll ever be. 100%. You got to have both. You have time for you as a working parent and you have time for your kids. And then you have clear boundaries. And you yeah, and I think, I think the message, you're right. I think, by the way, there have been moments where, you know, I have not been able to attend one of my kids' games and it's a good discussion. Hey, I get to whatever games I can and I will never miss a game because I didn't want to be there. Sometimes I will miss a game because I have to be somewhere else. Yeah. And that's part of my job. It's part of my responsibility. And you need to understand it's okay for you to go to the game by yourself. It'll be fine. Yep. Right. Talk, we'll talk afterwards. Tell me how it went. So what I, I think what we talk about, and I coach a lot of my teammates and, and especially people in, in the companies I built, I don't ever want you to feel like 
you're here at work because you feel guilty you need to be here. You should work because you have to, right? If there's something critical, and we should be able to run at a common level that every once in a while, everybody's got to jump down, dig in a little harder, and maybe work some extra hours, but that can't be the constant expectation. And there will be events that you need to be at that are important for your children. We should all make that happen. But obviously, there are sacrifices that have to be made. And it's good for your kids to see you work hard. And it's maybe good for your kid to see you go to work on a Saturday once in a while or crank some extra hours out. Then they have that work ethic when they're at school. And when they get their first jobs, right? You want your kids. I've always told my kids, I don't care if you're the best employee. I just want you to be the hardest working employee. Yeah. That's it. Right. I don't care if you're the best soccer player. I just want you to be the hardest working soccer player. I will never comment if you miss a shot. I'll comment if I saw you kind of lay off on one. <laughs> right? Yeah, right. There you go. <laughs> and my, by the way, my kids know it. My feedback for them after games is usually pretty straightforward. So then when I give them a compliment, they really take it for some value because it's not every day. I don't, oh, wonderful game, honey. Now, when they're six years old, right? They're all wonderful games. They're all wonderful games. <laughs> when they're 17 years old, the feedback can be a little bit more, yeah. Yeah, yeah. more direct. So let's talk about, uh, Jared, you've really done a great job of constantly testing your, your thesis and your message and finding where the audience is resonating with what you're, what you're doing. Help us understand, help the audience understand who's the right audience for your coaching. We primarily focus on working with married working parents who are also often business business owners, executives, founders, because they are the ones who are more prone to maybe get distracted with the career stuff. Mm-hmm. And then in you know, vice versa, parent somehow by sometimes by guilt. Mm-hmm. So so really truly helping them to define those boundaries manage both aspects of it. That's kind of our sweet spot. There's plenty of people out there and bless their hearts, like single parents are, uh, they've got a tough gig, Mm -hmm. hands down a really hard gig because either they have the kids and they're doing all the work all the time, or they're splitting the time with the kids Yeah, and somebody else is tucking their kids in and and putting them to bed. And that's just heart wrenching for me. But those sometimes bring scenarios where a single parent might say, well, I can put blinders on and just put my head down and work for three days. And that's not our clients. Our clients are people who they can't just put their blinders on because they've got to be at the PTA meeting and they've got to be at the board meeting Mm -hmm. and being able to find time to do all of that, as well as maybe, I don't know, take a shower or, Mm -hmm. you know, go to the gym or go for a run, uh, read a book, do those kinds of things. That's where kind of our sweet spot is. So let's tap into another part of we talked about right at the beginning. You just did this hundred mile race, and we had a good discussion yesterday about how to weave this into the podcast because a hundred mile Grand Canyon race is something that one tenth of one tenth of one percent of the people in the world will do, and it can be intimidating for the people you're coaching to think I'll never be Jared. Right? That's not the point of you doing this. Right? The point of your messaging when you're teaching people to find a way to manage their work life and their home life. And when people use the word balance, it's kind of a strange thing. I don't know that there's ever balance. I think in any given time, your home life and your work life are in crisis. There's very little, very few times in our life where you can look and go, I feel pretty balanced. Yeah, (laughs) This is easy. No, it doesn't happen. So I think what you're trying to tell people is that when you did this 100-mile run, for you, it was a way to test your boundaries, to push yourself into an, a very uncomfortable zone. You're a very elite athlete. So for you to push yourself means you probably have to go to more extremes than someone who hasn't exercised in five years, right? For that person, just walking their first 5K is going to be like 
a Grand Canyon run. I want to make sure people understand you have this concept of scope. You have this concept of their current situation. So let's use a scenario. Let's say I'm, I'm Pete and I, I see one of your things on LinkedIn, Jared, and I reach out and I say, hey, Jared, look, I've got three kids. My wife and I both work. They're entering their teens and I feel like I'm missing everything. Like I feel like I'm missing, I'm not present at work because I'm going home and I've, I've missed an event. My wife's stressed because she's working and she got home and we both look at each other like, well, what's for dinner? And, and she's like, I didn't have, you know, we, there's this constant tension about who owns what. And, and it's really needs to be a more collaborative set of responsibilities. Both of us don't feel good. Our health is drying. You know, it's just not there. Where do we start, Jared? Where's the first place we would start to get back on track? Love that because that's very in sync with what a client would tell me the first time. Yeah. And I would say, okay, you just listed out about eight things that need work. Right. Which is most important to you? That's where I would start very, very first, right? Because you yeah. talked about health, you talked about collaboration, you talked about being present with the kids and juggling work and, and home. So I would suss out very first, like what is most important to you? However, going back to that statement that my dad made so many years ago, it's about principles versus practices. Okay. And so we would dig into very first the principles, and I would teach you that all performance is founded on three principles. One, being consistent. Two, being correct, meaning you have the right tools and mm-hmm. techniques. And then being in control. And that means you're managing your intensity, your intention, and your effort. Okay. Those things happen... They can happen simultaneously, but really, they if, if you're looking for a place to start, you start with being consistent. Now, how do we be consistent? We zero in and we break that apart into what we call the core four. And that's being really clear on your vision, meaning what am I trying to accomplish? Big picture, what am I trying to accomplish for my career, for mm-hmm. my family? Little picture, what am I trying to accomplish right now in this moment, in this argument, in this conflict, in this discussion? In this dinner with my family, what am Mm -hmm. I trying to accomplish? And then our values, that's how do we need to show up in a way that protects what's most important? So if our family, we say is most important, then I might need to be more assertive at work. I might need to be more communicative with my my boss or Mm -hmm. with my spouse in order to protect my family. Sure. Okay. Then, Then we go to our beliefs. That's how are we thinking about ourselves? others and our circumstances. And this is where everybody gets hung up because beliefs are hijackers of our vision. Sure. We can say, I want a good career. I want a tight family. We can say, I'm going to be communicative, assertive, empathetic, patient. And then we get these ideas that, well, working long hours or 80 hour weeks is what it takes to succeed. Mm. Or we might say, my family will understand if I miss this recital again, or if I miss dinner, or if I'm not at yet another game. Or we might believe I'll make it up to them. Or we might believe that my boss is a big jerk and I can't go home for dinner. So beliefs just hijack the vision. And then the last is our actions or our habits. So what do we actually do that drives us towards that, that vision, that destination? So always we start with teaching those principles that in any given moment, you can ask yourself, what am I trying to accomplish right now? Who do I need to be? What do I believe about myself, others, my circumstances, and what action do I need to take right now? And people can try this tonight. Sit down at dinner and ask yourself with your family, what do I want out of this? And you might say things like, I want to have a engaging experience with my family, or I want to have a positive conversation, 
Well, then you go to your values. Well, you may need to be more curious. You mm-hmm. may need to listen better. You may need to be more patient or present. And then the beliefs, you want to root out the beliefs of, well, my teenagers don't want to talk to me or missing one dinner won't matter. Mm-hmm. We want to root that out. So we want to turn that into an empowering belief of if I share some of my day or if I talk about my difficulties, other people might share. And then the actions we take when we believe that is we share, we're open or we ask questions. We create that alignment between those core four. That creates consistency. You do that across time. And then when we start to layer in, well, here's some tools that actually you can use these tools to be more influential, more persuasive with your family or even to be able to build more confidence in yourself or more courage, then people are like, okay, cool. I understand the the alignment there to be consistent. Now I've got these really great tools and now we can turn up the heat with that intensity and we can push a little bit harder. Yeah. And that's where growth happens. And that's where sustainability happens versus these times where people are like, okay, cool. For one month, I'm going to just throw everything I've got at this, burn myself out, and default back to this terrible place next month because I just exhausted myself. Yeah. And back to what we talked about yesterday, there, there, I gave you a scenario with eight different things that were wrong that need to be addressed. Any one of the eight is a long-term continuous improvement process. You're not going to fix this entire problem overnight. And really intuitive comeback question to me, which is what's the most important thing right now that you're dealing with that you that that is causing and, and contributing to the other seven, right? There's going to be one that impacts all of them. I'll just share my personal experience from observing and working with people both as a trainer and as a, a bit of a, what I'll call a counselor, whatever you want. And just from our own family experience, I give a lot of credit to my wife on how our family has evolved because she was adamant from the beginning that we will always have a family meal together. And the reason I'm bringing this up is it's such a simple concept that is so forgotten in today's society because you talked about this. At the family meal, and what you did is have our kids do their homework when they were young at the kitchen table or at the counter, right? While she's making dinner and hopefully I'm home in time to at least be part of that process. Mm-hmm. And she's got like Frank Sinatra or Nat King Cole, classic music on in the background. And airlines are starting to pipe this music in now when you land. You fly in a Delta flight, they pipe this calming classical music in because they've discovered it calms people. At the onboarding process, when people want to go and they're cutting in front of each other and being rude, it, it calms people. So my kids have this appreciation for music in their lives. It's calming music. And then when they hear that music anywhere now, they think back of a family dinner. And you said something really important. We had three kids. Didn't have eight, but we had three. All three of them communicated very differently in any given dinner. In any given dinner, one of them would be chatty. One of them might be quiet. The chatty one, you let him run. <laughs> just yeah. Let him or her just go. Tell him about their day, you know, whatever it was, run with the topic and just smile and absorb it, pull more stuff out of them. The quiet one's okay. Maybe they had a quiet day. If they were quiet more than three days in a row, my wife would tap me in the shoulder. We talked that night and she goes, something going on with so-and-so. She was usually never wrong. I mean, never wrong. The other aspect of what you described that's important is they need to see how you treat each other as parents. And at a family dinner there's a really good opportunity every single day for your kids to see you love each other and be kind to each other and do the dishes or help each other or whatever and get into a little bit of a routine. Routines are good for kids. They're good to see that there's a routine. So I, for me, if you were to ask me, Pete, what would be the first thing? I'm like, I got to get myself aligned with my spouse. We got to feel like we're demonstrating love and affection to each other and that our kids know we're on the same page. 
And then I can kind of start building that out. That's the most important part, right? Then I can worry about work. I can worry about my kids, but I got to get that right. And then when I get that right, Jared, we probably both need to get healthier. What do I do? Right? You said I've taken so many notes. And by the way, during a podcast, I'm always trying to think of how I when I name a podcast. I know you do that. I'm like excited. What is he going to pull out? Oh, it's principles and practice versus practices. <laughs> when you said that right away, I'm like, that is brilliant. There's so much there. And then I talk to a lot of coaches, a lot of people that are doing consulting work. And when I ask them to tell me what they do, I get a very flowery description of, well, we, you gave us very specific things that you look for and that you work on that anyone listening to this would benefit from, right? If they just get one takeaway. And I know as a 53-year-old, I need coaching every day. I get coaching from you. I get coaching from the people that I've been in my podcast, my parents, my brothers, my, my spouse, good friends of mine are not afraid to knock me upside the head and say, buddy, you've got this wrong. So there's never, none of us have got it all figured out. Some of us have figured out specific parts of livelihood that they can learn and, you know, and share with others. Like you've got this here, right? If I want business advice, I'm going to go talk to my brother. I may not ask him advice in other categories, but if I want to know how to start, he's brilliant at it, right? So when you think about this race you just did in the Grand Canyon, and you think about helping other parents in difficult situations, at what point during that race, when you were with your brother, did you have to dig deep to help him? And how did you guys work through that? What was it that got you through it? It's kind of an amazing part of the story. Yeah, it's, it's funny. I think we, we referenced this yesterday, actually. So when we were in the Grand Canyon a month ago, we went and we did a trial run. We did uh, rim to rim to rim 50 miles and it was brutal heat and it was incredibly difficult. But we talked about actually Jesse Itzler and we talked about one of his experiences. My brother had just found Jesse Itzler and was talking about it. And he said, yeah, he started training with this ultra marathon trainer. I don't know if it was Goggins or somebody else when he yeah. did this, but he said he hit this point like mile 30 or something where he just hit the wall and he's like, I can't do it. And he's like, and he said the trainer and I don't, again, I don't know if it's Goggins or not, but he said that whoever his coach was looked him right in the eye and said, you know what? You feel amazing. And everybody that we see, you are going to go run up to them and you are going to tell them how amazing you feel. And I don't know what it was, but when we went back in October, anytime we started to hurt, it was like, but I don't hurt, Mike. I feel amazing and I'm doing great. And we're going to have the best run of our life. And truly, like when we think about those beliefs that hijack us, it's those beliefs that creep in or, and are like, why should I try? My spouse doesn't want to get on the same page with me. Mm-hmm. She never listens to me. My kids are. Uh, have behavioral issues. My kids are running rampant. My kids won't even care if I'm at dinner. Those are those beliefs that we let them in and we give them space and they are like a cancer to our potential. And so when I were in the Grand Canyon and I'm looking at this huge feat that I had never done, my little brother had done it two years before, held the FKT for it, had done it in 22 hours. And I'm looking at this thing, I'm thinking, I just don't want to die. But just that conversation from one month earlier, I was like, that is where I need to be. And so yeah. we did that. And it was a matter of like snapping back, definitely digging deep, following a plan, having a strategy all the way through to where he kept me tempered. And that's that intensity component. A lot of people will feel guilty and they'll just dial that intensity up. And that leads to burnout. It leads to injury. It leads to, leads to overwhelm. 
when it honestly shouldn't be that hard. But if you we know, skipped over the consistency and the correct and we've jumped to intensity, it's going to be that hard. A couple important nuggets there, right? You, you were with your brother. He was with you, right? Having someone next to you on a journey like this, whether it's a coach, a spouse, a sister, a friend, someone you can confide in is important just to share your feelings. Necessary, for sure. And we talked about Jesse Hitzler and the book he wrote, Living with a Seal. All right. So he did live with David Goggins for 31 days in, in his apartment in New York. And if you don't know who David Goggins is, look up the book. You can't hurt me and read it. It's impressive. But David Goggins said something really important that Jesse grabbed onto. And both Jesse and David are amazing, amazing people. They have a lot of things that Jesse's podcast is great. You know, just amazing. David said, when your brain says no, you're at 40% of your capacity. Think about that. Look, if your brain says I'm done, you still have 60% of your bandwidth left, right? Physically, mentally, whatever you you haven't even hit halfway. So for those that are thinking about going on a journey with Jared or, or need some serious life coaching, when you think your spouse won't listen to you, when you think you've lost your kids, you haven't. You haven't at all. And I'll share another tip that I think people might find valuable, particularly when it comes to relationships. When you're facing a difficult time, and, and by the way, spouses can get misaligned, right? They just they can get misaligned. They're just not connecting with each other. And by the way, that happens in any marriage. I don't care what you say. It happens right, in any marriage. Or how good, right. And my wife and I have been blessed. We're going to celebrate 30 years next year. And, and you know, we've had, like my wife says, you know, I, we had 25 amazing years of marriage. <laughs> uh, I, what we have discovered, and it works incredibly well in the very few times where we've been, you know, out of alignment, it's been typically around significant life events, right? A death in the family, financial struggles, work stress, whatever. One of the kids just not where we think they should be and, and worrying about it. When we got to the point where we couldn't communicate, we would write each other a letter, literally sit down and write a letter and sleep on it and then send it to each other. And what happens when you do that, it removes all of the emotion. You can collect your thoughts and you can say, this is how I'm feeling. And we have never had a situation that was not resolved with a letter. And it allows you to read and hear what they're saying in an objective manner and think to yourself, how am I processing this? And it's instant. It's literally instant relief on how you're feeling with each other. So as people are listening to this and they think they can't be helped, think about being in the canyon, right? Where you're out of gas, you got 45 more miles to go. You probably have way more capacity than you think. If you think you're at the end of the rope with your family or your kids, you're, you're not. I would also admit it depends on the age your kids are when, when they come to you. If your kids are teenagers, this might be a tougher road. Yeah. <laughs> if your kids are little, they're resilient. Right. They will, there's ways to come back. So, Jared, the mission you're on right now, this mission isn't profit driven. This mission is mission driven. Absolutely. If you leave yourself with one message to the people hearing this that might be thinking to themselves, man, I could, I could probably use Jared's help. What's the one thing that prevents people from reaching out that you can help them understand? Yeah. I I think it is um, a lot of times, it is this idea that I should be able to do this on my own. I should be able to do this alone. I'm a, I'm a grown man or a grown woman, or I've, I'm older. Or I've been at this for a long time. I should be able to do it on my own. And the fact of the matter is we just don't do anything on our own. Mm-hmm. We haven't. From the time we were very, very little, we have most of us grown up in a very specific structure where we have had a mentor, a guide, a teacher, a coach who's pulling us along. And I think a lot of times personal growth, it has that degree of suffering. And sometimes we can voluntarily choose to step into suffering 
And other times we have to be pulled into suffering. Let me be incredibly clear. Suffering is a part of the journey. It's going to happen. You can either choose or you can just let it happen. I prefer voluntary suffering. And sometimes I'm asking people to pull me along. And sometimes I'm stepping full into it and just driving forward myself. So don't beat yourself up thinking I should be able to do it on my own. Really evaluate how much progress have you made on your own? And it doesn't have to be even a coach. There's tons of coaches out there who anytime I say, hey, you need help, you can't do it alone. They're like, great, now everybody's going to call me. No, it doesn't have to be a coach, but you need people that you can go to and say, hey, this is what I'm struggling with. Can you help me? 100%. And it could be a friend, it could be a sister-in-law, it could be your pastor, it could be anybody that you think would listen to you and be a sounding board. I'll leave everyone with this and we'll close. If you're considering and if you're facing something in your life that you just can't get your arms around, there's nothing else more you should invest your time and your money in than your family, period, right? If you think of anything you're going to spend money on the next 60 days, and if you don't have this right, this is where it needs to go. It's the best investment you can make. So just a pleasure having you in the program. We're very fortunate to have guests on here who bring real life experiences, and you've had some, but who also bring real life solid advice. And uh, it's a joy to watch you see you do what you do and, and uh, can't wait to continue to follow you and get you on the program down the road and see how things are going. Hey, I appreciate being here. I'm a huge fan and just think of you as an amazing leader, an amazing mentor. And so I'm just totally honored to be here. So I really appreciate it, Pete. It's our pleasure. Uh, Jared, have a wonderful holiday season. And this will come out probably early January or early 2022 and people will be looking hey, forward to it. There you go. Happy New Year. Yeah. All right. <laughs> all right. Thanks for checking out Eating Crow. Like and subscribe so you never miss a video. 